This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Now, before we go into the subject of your next two books, uh, yesterday Kevin Green died. The I heard former, that, yeah. the former great linebacker for the Steelers and uh, Panthers, uh, among uh, other teams. And I was curious, as a football historian, what were your thoughts about him as a player, and what do you think his impact was on the game, if any? He was a great pass rusher, and I think that's probably the first thing anybody will say about him. Was from a defensive end position, he was just a great pass rusher. One thing that you know with a lot of pass rushers as defensive ends they list speed as their main asset and kevin had that but but kevin also had a lot of strength and when he wanted to and when he was required to he could play the inside game and on stunts and stuff and and muscle his way into the backfield and harass the quarterback he could do that very well i think i i hate to compare players because I know a lot of people are going to say it's heresy, but I thought that he compared pretty favorably to Reggie White um, because they both had that strength that they could just move a guy out of the way and, you know, go inside as opposed to a speed rush on the outside. I thought I thought Kevin was just a tad faster than Reggie White. Maybe that's why Reggie spent most of his time as a defensive tackle and Kevin was a, as a defensive end. But I, I think Kevin uh, was one of the best pass rushers of his era. I mean, I don't even think it. I know it. And um, I don't think there's anybody that would disagree with that. Uh, gone way too soon. I'm, I'm only a few months younger than him. That, that just boggles the mind when you think about it. He was 58. I'm 57. I turned 58 in March. It's just incredible. That, you know, and I, I asked some people, was it COVID or something? They said no. So, I mean, my best friend died when we were both 34 years old. He died of a massive heart attack. So they happen, you know. So, yeah. yeah, it definitely puts things in perspective when, you know, people of that age go away so young. Because, oh, yeah. you know, obviously to me, 58 is older, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're old. Well, you know, this medical science today, you have um, a lot of people, my parents, God rest their souls, they died at 86 and 83, re- respectively, a- a- ages. And and there were people living way past them in the nursing home that were in their 90s. So we are living longer. We have better medicines today. We have better health care today overall compared to many years ago, I suspect. But... Um, you know, 58, That's to me, that's young to, to go. I'm not ready to go yet. I got too much I want to do. Um, but I'm sure Kevin wasn't ready to go either. When your number's up, it's up. There's there's not a whole lot, you know, you can do to, to change that. I'm sure he was in better health than I am, you know, before yesterday. Because I, I had read stories where people were talking to him uh, the other day, and he sounded fine. So it's a sad thing. 
He was a few years before my time. I don't remember when he retired, but obviously his heyday was the Blitzburg defense with him right. and Greg Lloyd and LeVon Kirkland. And I've thankfully to YouTube and NFL films, I've gotten to see a lot of games with him. And just like you said, you know, when you watch him on the field, the guy's massive. Yeah. You know, he's able to really have speed, but he's able to physically dominate. And I think you, you might know this more than I do, but when he was with the Rams, I think he actually played a little bit inside too. Yeah. Because he wasn't really a fit for what they were doing in a four three, but you know he would play some inside. And Fritz Shermer, I think, even actually created some defenses just to get him on the field back at a time when you didn't really have a lot of sub packages. And and the good coaches will do that. They know that they have a superior athlete, and they can't have him on the bench. They got to get him on the field because he creates havoc, and that's what he did. Um, could you imagine if he would have played on that Jets? Defensive line of Gastineau and Klecko, they would have been outlawed. That was, that was the same era. So, oh, God, that would have been something. Now, when we talk about great coaches, your next book, which was the year the Packers came back, uh, Green Bay's <laughs> 1972 Resurgence, uh, a big part of the book talks about Dan Devine, who in the NFL was anything but a great coach. Yeah. Before we get into him, can you tell me a little bit about the idea and how it came about for this book? Oh, um, well, I uh, I started watching pro football as a kid in 1971, and I remember the 72 season. It was like the very first season that I really, really followed it. And I I noticed that the Packers had won the division championship in the Central Division at that time. And you know, I figured, okay, they lost their first round playoff game against the Redskins. Um, but I was always curious as to, you know, they were pretty one dimensional. How did they win 10 games? So that always stayed in the back of my mind. And, you know, I, I made a lot of friends over the years who were Packers fans and they, they suggested, you know, you like football history. Why don't you just look into this 72 Packers team? Cause I never see anything that's written about them. And, when nothing is written about something, that almost means that it's something that, you know, that at least there's an avenue for me to at least explore and think, well, if nobody's written about it, at least there's no competition. So I I looked into it, and then I started to look at um, different newspaper clippings and things like that. And other people wrote articles and stuff and stuff, but but nobody had written a book. But I thought, wow, how did this team ever win a division with this head coach? I just couldn't figure it out uh, because everything that they said about this head coach was in the articles was like really, really bad. You know, it wasn't it wasn't uplifting in any sense. Uh, so I, I thought, you know what, I don't have a contract a book contract on this, but let me do more research. And I, I did a little bit more research and I discovered, you know what, this, this story needs to be told. So even without a contract, I started writing a book and I started doing more research and I, you know, I just started combining stuff. And then I figured, well, I'll, I'll throw the idea out to McFarland and company because they published my first book and they really liked my first book. And they were kind of, you know, so-so on the idea. But because my first book was selling so well, they gave me a contract for it. And they said, all right, go ahead. You know, I mean, you know, 
what do we got to lose? I mean, he sold 1,600 copies of his first book already. So, And so I, I wrote this book, and I was able to talk to some of the players, not all of them. Some of them didn't want to talk to me. <laughs> they, they didn't want that chapter of their lives uh, reinvestigated anymore. And so um, some of them, unfortunately, have passed away before I ever got to talk to them. But when I did get a chance to talk to people like Dave Robinson and John Brockington and Scott Hunter, um, it was like, wow, this this is this is really incredible. How could this have happened? You know, once I started talking to these guys, I said, you know, I, I definitely need to finish this. Of course, I was under contract by that time. Um, and that that took up a lot of my time, but it was worth it because I just thought that this was a story that no one's really explored and it would make for an interesting book. I I didn't think it would, you know, I, I was kind of surprised that, you know, anybody would have believed it, but every one of these players corroborated everything else that the other ones said. So I figured, well, they're not making this up. <laughs> it's just incredible. So that's kind of how it started. And it snowballed from there, and I just thought it was worth pursuing. And whenever you're going through and pondering the idea, do images of the 72 Packers team come back in your head from when you saw them on television? They they did, especially after I um, looked at their highlight film. And then I looked at other films uh, from NFL films, NFL Game of the Week, uh, This Week in Pro Football, and I started watching them and I'm thinking, well, in, in some aspects, this team could have won more games. And then in other aspects, this team should have never won anywhere near the amount of games that they won. So they were such a dichotomy. It was, it was a weird team to figure out. And I never could really figure it out, but I could figure out their head coach. He was a very egotistical man and um, it, he didn't really lend himself toward enhancing that team's chances, certainly not in a playoff game. And in the book, you talk about uh, Dan Devine and a lot of the shortcomings that he had. You know, you point out, just as you did right now, that he was described as an egomaniac, how mm -hmm. he wasn't very inspiring. He wasn't really an X's and O's guy. So how did he get the job as uh, the head coach for one of the most storied franchises in the NFL? He got it um, from being a a, uh, a winning college head coach, most recently at the University of Missouri prior to joining the Packers. Now, he may not have gotten, this is my own thought, he may not have gotten the Packers job right after Vince Lombardi retired because Vince recommended his own person, who was his right-hand man, um, Phil Bankston, to be his su successor. Um, if Vince did not do that, I still I don't believe that Dan Devine would have gotten a job then. But it took a couple of years for Phil Brankston to be the head coach and to see the team go from a championship level all the way down to a mediocre also ran level. And the, the Packer Brain Trust was willing to try something new, sort of new. You see, they hired Dan Devine out of the University of Missouri. He had won a couple of bowl games, and uh, they thought, well, you know, hey, if you can win a major bowl game, you should be okay. That, that theory isn't really a good, accurate theory, but 
but they made a big mistake in that the, even back at that time, you you should never have hired somebody to have a role of head coach and general manager. And I believe that even to this day, that's a mistake. Well, Lombardi had both roles, but even Lombardi knew that it was just too much to ask of any one person. They gave those two roles to Dan Devine. That was a big mistake, uh, as history proves out, which makes the 72 season all the more strange in that they were winners. With Dan Devine as head coach, they should have... They should have floundered in defeat, but instead they became a 10-4 and four team that won a division title. Not a wild card, a division title. So that 72 year was a strange year. Uh, 73, 74, Dan Devine became what you might expect him to become, a losing coach. And um, his decisions caught up with him, and the team failed, and, and miserably so. And in fact, Dan Devine's decisions also hurt his successor at Green Bay, Bart Starr. And you, you mentioned that Devine came over from Missouri and that he had won a couple bowl games. And this is more of kind of a general question of, you know, what made it so hard for NFL coaches back then or college coaches that had transitioned to the NFL as head coaches? Because you rarely ever see that work out, you know, beautifully. <laughs> I think in today you might see a little more successfully, but it doesn't seem like that was the case back then. What was it that made that transition so difficult? You know, I think in Devine's case, he kept treating players in the pros like they were students in college. And like Dave Robinson told me, you, you can't do that. These are grown men. They, you know, they they get to the NFL on their merit. It's not like a, a college kid who gets there um, you know, he might be a walk on for crying out loud. You don't know. Um, but in the pros, you're, you don't get there by accident. You earn the right to play in the pros. There's not that many jobs out there. Um, I, I just think that a, a lot of the college coaches at that time believed in the Lombardi ethic, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust, run ball, run the ball, run the ball. And, you know, very few threw the ball a lot in college. Uh, Don Coriel did, and when he got a chance to get to the pros eventually, he became a great pro coach. In fact, some people say he's long overdue for the Hall of Fame. I just don't think that the NFL was willing to take that many chances back then, and I also think that the NFL coaches or the NFL brain trust they they didn't believe that college coaches had the had the right abilities that measured into an NFL type of a head coaching thing. Tommy Prothrow, the um his first job in the NFL was in 1971 with the Los Angeles Rams. He was, I believe, in his 70s when he got it. Imagine hiring a 70 some year old head coach for his first ever pro coaching job. He had spent all these years coaching in college. It was much harder back then for a college coach to get in. I think the reasons are just numerous, you know, dependent on the the NFL personnel and what they were looking for. 
And, and do you think maybe the schematic nature of the game, how it's advanced in terms of how it's played? Because you mentioned Don Coriel liked to throw the ball when he was in college. And then whenever St. Louis gave him the opportunity, they allowed him to really implement his style of offense. So do you think that maybe how the game has kind of expanded has allowed coaches uh, from college to succeed? Oh, I, I think so quite a bit, but, but it's still, you know, I mean, when you look at college and pro today, they're throwing the ball like crazy. It's just no getting away from it. You can watch any pro or college game you want, and quarterbacks are throwing upwards of 30, 40 times a game. They weren't doing that in the 70s. Now, there's other reasons why um, college coaches had a, t- a hard time. It it depended upon the owner. See, the owner's got to hire the coach uh, and the general manager, too. Um and it depends on what the, these owners are not, you know, the normal people. They have a lot of money. Who knows what they're thinking? I mean, Jer- Jerry Jones is like a perfect case of the Dallas Cowboys. They haven't won in decades. And, um, it, you know, they haven't won much in decades. So you never know what they're thinking. Um, the the guy that I'm writing a book on now, Bill Bradley, formerly the Eagles, um, the owner of the Eagles at that time was Leonard Toes. And in 76, he decides to hire this one guy that did, he played, he coached like one or two years at UCLA and he led them to a Rose Bowl win, but nothing much was else was known about him. The guy he hired was Dick Vermeil. And Dick Vermeil changed coaching, I believe, forever, in my own opinion, because he came up, he, he was a workaholic and the, the term had never been used before. And Dick Vermeil would work 20-hour days and sleep in his office on a cot. And and most, I mean, I can't see Tom Landry doing that. <laughs> I mean, Chuck Knoll was a hard worker, but I don't think he slept in a cot at Three Rivers Stadium. I, I just don't. Uh, at least I haven't heard that he had. He had. So um, it all depended on what kind of a risk an owner was willing to take if you're losing and have lost for many years, I think that lends itself to more owners taking more of a risk than than not. You know, a lot of owners will have advisors, and a lot of advisors play it safe. They they have for years, and that's why you have a lot of teams that stay losing for years. Winning comes with people who are willing to take risks. Now, sometimes you can lose terribly with that as well. But if you win, you can win big. Um, you can go to a roulette table in Atlantic City and see that happen. And if you put a lot of chips on, on, on one specific number, and if it hits, you don't have to worry about working anymore. You know. So. And like you mentioned earlier about being a head coach and being a GM, I think a lot of people have are of the opinion, and I think rightfully so, that when you have an owner that tries to act like a GM as well, you know, he may not have the title of GM, but I think when he involves himself in more situations that then called for, that oftentimes creates a conflict within the organization. And I think yeah. when you look at some of the greatest franchises, even of the past few decades, you know, obviously when you look at the Patriots, you know, Robert Kraft leaves Bill Belichick to do whatever he needs to do. Mm-hmm. You know, the Roonies have historically allowed them, uh, their coaches to do what they had to do or with the Maras whenever Tom Coughlin was there. So I think yep. there is a kind of a, a pattern that most people have taken an eye of, but 
you obviously when you're an owner, you know, you think you obviously you own the franchise, so you feel like you should be involved in every decision. But I think you can see kind of where the styles differ and the success that comes with it. I think I think some some the smarter owners learn to lay off. And then um, it also amounts to the amount of togetherness that the, that the, that the, uh, the, the brass, the, uh, the, the front office can have with the coach. How well do they mesh together? This uh, experiment in Oakland right now between, um, oh gosh, uh, the head coach of the uh, Raiders right now, John mm-hmm. Gruden, and uh, the guy that his uh, general manager used to be on ESPN all the time. Mike Mayer. Uh, yeah. I mean, those guys have a long, long-standing working relationship with each other. So there's that background of trust. And you can't, you, you can't beat that because they, they have an open-door communication with each other. They, they, they bounce ideas off of each other. They, they, they both have the one main goal. It's what's in the best interest of the team to win. And when you have that, you don't have the egos dealing with it. I mean, John Ego, John, John Ego, John Gruden's got an ego. There's no doubt about it. But it doesn't affect how he uh, coaches the team or how he 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 doesn't care if his ego stinks as long as he can get that team to win. That's what you need. And for, and speaking of egos, you know, Dan Devine, as you mentioned throughout the book, is a big ego. Um, and he gets there in 1971, and I think they finished with a four, eight, and two record, something, mm-hmm. something along those lines. Exactly. What was the biggest, what do you think was the number one turnaround going from 71 to 72? Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to give Devine some credit in that he did make some trades that really benefited the team. Um, Donnie Anderson was a great running back for the Packers. Uh, he was on two Super Bowl champions. Uh, but he, Divine thought that MacArthur Lane from St. Louis, who was available via trade, would be a better fit to block for John Brockington. As it turns out, both Brockington and Lane were almost identical. They blocked well for each other, and they both ran well. Um, so that was that was important going from 71 without MacArthur Lane to 72 with him. That really helped. Um, and, and another thing was how the defensive secondary gelled so well. And again, you kind of have to give Devine a little bit of credit. He drafted Willie Buchanan. Nobody else did. I mean, you know, he was the one who decided we're going to draft Willie Buchanan. So this cornerback, this rookie cornerback, almost overnight becomes a shutdown cornerback in the NFL from Arizona State to the Packers. Now, he only intercepted, I believe, four passes, but he was able able to cover um, a team's primary wide receiver man-on-man, leaving the other three defensive backs to worry about that other end, the other side of the field. So, I mean, and like my friend, uh, uh, Coach T.J. Troop has told me, uh, the rest of the members of that defensive secondary had career years in 72. They had years, the greatest years of their life in 72. So I believe they permitted seven touchdown passes all year. <laughs> Tom Brady can throw seven touchdown passes in five quarters, practically, 
and Mahomes maybe in four quarters. So, so you know, there's seven touchdown passes in a year. That's that's just incredible. Uh, that, you know, so they that the defensive secondary worked extremely well. They didn't have that secondary in '71. They had it in '72. Um, the running game was working. Now, what precludes me to think that they should have never won anything was the fact that they had no passing game. As it turns out, they didn't need it. Uh, you, your defenders knew you were going to run the ball, but they still couldn't stop the run. So whenever they did throw and complete a pass, it was a bonus more than anything else. I believe that if uh, their tight end, Rich McGeorge, did not get hurt in the second year, or the uh, second game of the year, and he was out the rest of the year, if he would have stayed healthy, their passing numbers would have been so much better. And they, they may have even had a better record. Um, but the way the playoff system was set up, uh, they were still going to play that first playoff game in Washington. It wouldn't have been in Green Bay. How many of the players were left over from Lombardi? Let's see. That's a good question. Nobody really asks that. Um, I would have to say there were at least at least about between 15 and 25 Pretty many, um, but he started. He whittled it. He got away. You know, he got them from seventy-one to the beginning of seventy-two. He got rid of over a dozen of them, one way or another. Um, some he traded, some retired, I think, and then others. Uh, they um, their contracts were just not renewed or something like that. But but. I would have to say around a dozen. Now, I could be corrected on that because I'm not sure. I've been away from it for a while. I haven't really um, reread the book anytime lately uh, because of all these other projects. But um, maybe Packer fans out there can, can, you know, confirm that or not. But he got rid of quite a few. Uh, that was that was one of his goals, actually. And the ones that were on the 72 team, what was their role? Were they kind of the wise veterans who were supposed to guide the younger players, or did some of them still have starting positions? Where do they kind of fit into the uh, the whole situation? Well, both. Uh, certainly they were considered veterans, knowledgeable, and, you know, without saying it, Devine expected them to, you know, tutor the, the younger players. Um, but many of them remained starters because back at that time you only had a 40 man roster. They, you know, you didn't have a whole lot of people just, uh, situational substitutions back at that time. Today you do, but not now, but not then. And how do they assimilate to the culture that Devon was creating? Did they maybe kind of give him the benefit of the doubt as a new coach at times, or were they not really patient with everything that was happening? I, I thought they assimilated poorly. It didn't take long for them to realize that this guy was over in his head. He was just, he was too much of an egomaniac. And it, it just, uh, it, it, they, they just, he, just within a few weeks, they realized that this wasn't going to work. And, and, and that's why you had a lot of people leaving the team in 71. Divine didn't play that game either. He, he wanted to get rid of them. Um, you know, he wanted his own people and he wanted to find people that would actually, you know, play hard for him, even though he didn't really 
he was the least studious coach in the NFL, in my opinion, maybe of all time. And as someone who was, as a coach who was a, a stickler, you you bring up how he would humiliate players and constantly reinforce like the negative aspects of their game. Um, do you think he was a stickler in that sense because he wanted to send a message that the Lombardi fandom in Green Bay was in the past and he wanted to create something of his own? Or do you think that was just his coaching style period? You know, I kind of think it was his coaching style, but I, I don't think he knew any better. Um, sadly, he passed before I could ever talk to him, but I read his book. He wrote a book. Um, and, uh, you know, he, I, I just think that it was his own coaching style that he grew up with the, the, the negative reinforcement, not the positivity, just the negative reinforcement. And I, I just think that that kind of was a byproduct of his era. Uh, it's, it's hard to say, you know, if he would have ever changed, but I kind of doubt it because after he left Green Bay, he went to Notre Dame to coach there. And he was, you know, he was not really a great coach, but you know, you're Notre Dame, you're going to get a lot of quality uh, recruits no matter what. But like um, a friend of mine who was the Packer PR person at that time, Chuck Lane told me, you know, Dan Devine at Notre Dame benched Joe Montana. Well, nobody benches Joe Montana. Even back then, I mean, Bill Walsh said Joe Montana was a quarterback the moment he put on his first jock strap. So, um, you know, that that shows you what Dan Devine knew about player evaluations and maybe how to treat players, you know. So. And I think a comment towards his um, reputation as an egomaniac, I think he actually got mad at the uh, at his portrayal in the movie Rudy. Did he ever? Um, yeah. Dave Robinson told me a story that, um, you know, when they were making this movie, Dan was still alive. No, no. Dan had, Dan had already passed, but they, his family members found out about that they were making this movie, and they found out how they were portraying Dan Devine in a negative way, which kind of is what happens in the movie. And the producers, and the, so Dan Devine's relatives, they contact the producers and they say, we're going to sue you if you go ahead with this. And the producers got together and they, they drafted a letter and they say, look, um, you can sue us if you want to, but if you do sue us, we'll put everything else in in the film that we didn't put in, you know, and that'll make it make him look even worse. And they dropped the suit almost immediately. And, and you know, and, and I figured, wow. <laughs> it's it's kind of interesting how, you, you know, there could have been some other worse things that happened at Notre Dame. You know, I I don't know. But I'm, I haven't been in touch with Joe Montana in, let's see, forever. So I don't uh, know if he's going to be able to corroborate any of that. But, um I would think that he he would be able to if he if if he was uh, interested in doing so, but Dan Dan Devine I think was an egomaniac well after his Packer years. 
What was his relationship like with Bart Starr? Because Bart had retired, I believe, after uh, 71, and he became the quarterback coach. Yeah. What was his relationship like with Bart? Was he someone who respected what he had done and wanted him to um, kind of fill in the holes on offense, perhaps where, where needed? Or did he kind of view him as a necessity, I guess, to kind of bridge the gap between him and some of the other players from that Lombardi era? I, I think the latter more so than anything else. Um, you, you know, according to Dave Robinson, Divine's goal was to get rid of almost everybody that worked for Lombard, Lombardi or played for Lombardi. And, of course, Bart Starr certainly did. Uh, he played for Lombardi. And um, so he probably looked at him as more of a necessity, as, like you say, to bridge the gap. Um, but... You know, Bart really didn't get a Bart Starr doesn't say a bad thing about anybody. I really don't think he would have said a bad thing about Dan Devine, but he sure didn't agree with him, especially not in 72 when, you know, especially with the playoff game. The biggest, well, I make I made a lot of big mistakes in my life, but one of the biggest was when I did get a chance to interview Bart Starr. I didn't know I was going to write a book about the 72 Packers way back then. If I had known that, I definitely would have asked him that question, and I would have spent much more time talking to Mr. Starr about the 72 team than anything else. But I didn't know it back then. You know, I was just a young reporter. Yeah, it's like we kind of talked about last time. You never know what you could do for one project and how it could apply to future ones. Definitely. And so you got to talk to a lot of players from that team for the book. When you talked to them, did they get the sense that that season was kind of a fluke, like it was a one and done? Or did they think that maybe they had some foundation to continue with their success moving forward? You know, I don't know. That is a very good question. I don't know because I think they knew that a lot of their veterans were leaving on an annual basis. So they may have thought of it more as a fluke, but none of them ever said that to me. Um, they, they were really inspired by the togetherness that they had on that team. But you look a year later in 73 and they went right back to losing again. They had a losing record. So, you know, I guess in retrospect, you could say that, you know, certainly it it, it was a flu. Packers won a division title or went to the playoffs period. But, you know, they... They got along so well together, these players. They stuck with each other because they were really all they had to rely on. They couldn't go to Coach Devine with their problems or issues or something. And so um, I, I kind of think that if they, if you were to ask that question of them today, they would probably say it was more of a fluke than anything else just based on the fact that they didn't win anything else after that. But during that year, they they were they were pleasantly surprised and happy with the foundational uh, players that they had, you know, both older and younger, and how they gelled so well. When you spoke to them and they offered their criticisms of Dan Devine, did you get the sense that a lot of what they were feeling was apparent when they were playing for him, or do you think that? It- it took a little time after they had retired to really formulate these opinions about him. No, they, they knew right away. Um, they, there was no, there was no, uh, um, 
uh, beating around a bush. Uh, they they knew because they had they had played for other people. Um, John Brockington had played for Woody Hayes. Uh, Scott Hunter had played for um, Paul Bear Bryant. They had played for winning coaches. Of course, uh, the veteran players and the Packers, they played for Lombardi. They knew what it took to win. And when they have this, this guy coming in here who may have won at Missouri, uh, but all of a sudden try to change uh, a winning philosophy around and, you know, and be his own person, which I, I guess he had to do. But th- that's one thing. One quote that uh, Brockington said to me, you, you know why um, Paul Holmgren, Mike, Mike Holmgren succeeded so well? And I said, no, why? Because he didn't try to, to compete with the Lombardi legacy. He, he knew that, you know, Lombardi is a god in Green Bay. He didn't. He didn't try to compete with it. He embraced Lombardi legacy, and he was his own person. Uh, Holmgren was, and the the town of Green Bay to this day loves Mike Holmgren. So, um, you, you know, Dan Devine just missed the boat on that. It was just something that his ego got in the way, and it just you know, it succeeded for a year. That team succeeded for a seventy two season, but then that was it. Did you have any players that gave support for Devine or maybe tried to offer a balanced view of what he was doing? You know, that was like an ulterior motive of mine when I first started this project was to try and balance the scales and try and find some players who would say something positive. I didn't talk to any of them, but I read about an article about one of them who was a um, an offensive lineman, Francis Pay, who uh, played for the Packers, for for um, Divine. Um, but he had also played for Divine at Missouri. And Divine was very much, if you played for him at Missouri, he was going to try to find a way to get you on his pro team, the Packers. And um, Francis Pay played for Divine in Green Bay as well. And he, he said that Divine had a way of motivating players that wasn't that that weren't the norm per se but it worked at least it worked at missouri that was as close as i found of anybody that's had anything positive to say about dan divine and his coaching it was kind of like within a few weeks i realized this is a dry well i can't find anything about anybody saying anything good about this guy turns out i wasn't wrong now, all things considered, they did finish the 72 season uh, as division champs. So what was the attitude going into 73? Were the fans and the sports writers optimistic about what they could do? Or did everybody see kind of the opportunity for fool's gold here? Uh, it was They were very optimistic at the beginning of the year. Um, they, they, had, they printed out bumper stickers. Everything's fine with Divine. And stuff like that. I mean, they were they were excited. Um, and uh, who could blame them? They went to the playoffs. Uh, you know, almost sounded like uh, what's his name? They uh, Jim Moore. Yeah. Jim Moore. <laughs> you know, I mean, they 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 went from four eight and two to ten and four. Wow. You know, what's next? We can go. Let's let's book the Super Bowl tickets now. They they won their very first game in 73. It was a Monday night game 
against the Jets, no, Joe Namath, and they, they won it fairly easily, 23-7, to and everything looked good, and the bottom fell out almost overnight, almost overnight. They just started losing and losing and losing. John Brockington, when I talked to him about the beginning of 73, um, he, he, came, he came into the first team meeting criticizing the guys right from the get-go about losing their playoff game to the Redskins. This is at the first spring practice in 73. And Brockington scratching his head wondering, what is he talking about? He's the one that lost it for us. His decisions lost us that game. So, you know, it didn't take long before 73 became a losing year. Uh, but there was optimism at the beginning of it. The fan base was thrilled. They they learned their lesson, that's for sure. I was watching on YouTube the NFL Films highlight that they made of uh, the 72 Packers. And whenever you watch that, it's only about a half hour. But when you watch it, you get the sense that this was a team that really wanted to follow Devon to Helen back, you know, that they yeah. really loved him as a coach. And it just shows you how creative the Sables were because they could just take something that was not grounded in reality whatsoever, but give you the the sense that there was something in the works at Green Bay. You know, the person who uh, put together that highlight film, his name was James Green. And I don't even know if he's alive um, because I couldn't find him. And I've got I've got a friend at NFL Films, and he didn't he he doesn't know who he was. So I I don't know how long he worked there, but he was there during the seventies. And he, you know his his premise was that um, you know this was uh, a, an up and coming team, and that the division title was because of Dan Devine. And any nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Dan Devine was a detriment to that team. So that's kind of what my book was about, at least one of the chapters. And I, I just tried to include as many uh, examples as I could, let the reader decide for themselves. But I, I don't want to badmouth NFL films because it was a different era. Their job was to promote the game. To, to get people to watch the game, either in the stands or on television, you know, and I was one of them. And so I understand what their job was. And I also know that they, they could take like in 73, the Houston Oilers won one game, one in 13 all year long. Watch the 73 Houston Oilers highlight film. If you get a chance. You almost think that they were seven at seven. You know, it, it's it's incredible. It's like they sh they 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 highlight the one game that they won and how they came back to win it. You know, and it's like this is the springboard to a, a championship. You know, and it's like well, as it turned out, they were kind of prophetic because in '74 they did go seven and seven, and so. I'm not going to badmouth NFL films for what they said in the past three, four, five decades ago, but sometimes they were right. <laughs> but the, the 72 Packers, they were not. Of all the play, you interviewed a lot of players, obviously, and you mentioned already that Bart Starr was a player that had you known you were going to write a book about this, that you would have asked him more questions. Mm -hmm. uh, but who is a deceased player that you, you wish you could have interviewed for this? 
a deceased player for the Packers of 72. Hmm, let's see. You know, that's a very good question. I, uh, you know, that's, that's a, let me ponder that one. Um, I don't know if they are deceased, but I would, I, I, I tried to interview Jerry Taggy, backup quarterback, and he, he told me, no, he wasn't involved. He, he didn't want to relive that chapter in his life. Um, I, I wish I would have asked Herb Adderley, who I did talk to the, the night I met Bart Starr and interviewed him. I wish I would have asked him about that because he knew about cornerback play. And by that time, he was already gone to Dallas. But he would have known uh, about that scenario. Um, you know, because like Adderley, he he swore by Lombardi. Um he he told me that he would have played injured for Lombardi, but he he played for Lombardi, uh, Tom Landry, and he didn't play injured for Tom Landry. He he didn't like to anyway. Um, I I guess if there was a deceased player on the Packers at that well, from a few years ago that I would have been able to interview. Man, you know another guy I didn't interview was Chester Markle. I never got to interview him. He's still alive. It would have been nice if he would have let me interview him, but he didn't. That's a good question, Aaron. I I, I can't give you a good answer to it. <laughs> you stumped me. <laughs> well, hey, you know, we could have another podcast and talk about that one too. <laughs> you know, when someone says they don't want to relive that chapter of their lives, do you think they come from a personal standpoint? Like maybe that was kind of a time when professionally they weren't at the top of their game and maybe that bled into their personal life? Or do you think they just don't have an interest in really rehashing the past? Probably both. I think, well, with like um, Jerry Taggy, for example, he, he won two national championships at the University of Nebraska. And he goes to the Packers. He's a backup quarterback in 72, plays a little bit, but not much. And in 73 and 74, he plays more, and then he's done. He, he's done with football. So I don't know if, you know, because he really didn't, go into detail as to why to give me reasons um i i just think maybe it's because he was not as successful in the pro game as he was in the college game possibly but he didn't he didn't say that specifically so i can only uh you know surmise that that may have been a reason um i i kind of think that sometimes you know the real world you know follows these guys out of the game and you know, as the old saying goes, when the audience stops applauding, the, the silence can be deafening. Um, a lot of them, I remember I, I interviewed Stan Walters, who used to play for the Bengals and the Eagles. And he told me, you know, we were we were sitting in a press box in Veteran Stadium, and, and he looked at me, you know, during a TV timeout, and he said, you know, I really miss this. And I said, what? It was, I, I really miss the crowd cheering for me. I'm thinking, wow, you've been out of the game for, what, eight or nine years, and you've reached that point already. Man. So I think it all depends on what you've got in the rest of your life that determines the answer to that question. Sadly, um, you know, uh, Chester Markle tried to commit suicide. 
so you, you know i'm fortunately he failed and uh and thankfully he's doing better and so we don't know what tomorrow brings and we certainly can't foretell our futures years and years and years from now so you know you had mentioned kevin green earlier you you better live every day like it's your last cuz it just might be and last question on this book if you were to ask Dan Devine one question, what would it be? Why did you not allow Bart Starr to call plays in that playoff game against Washington? You had allowed him to call the plays all season long. Why did you decide to just not allow him to call plays? That's all. Just give me an answer. And that's a game where uh, George Allen used uh, like a five-man defensive line to shut down the running game. Exactly. Uh, John Brockington said it was one of the most embarrassing games of his life. Are you are you doing good on time? Yeah, I'm good. All right, cool. So your third book is America's Trailblazing Middle Linebacker about Willie Lanier for the Kansas City Chiefs. Why a book about Willie Lanier? I was, um, I'll I'll tell you how it came about. I was on my way up north to do research at the Ralph Wilson Pro Football Hall of Fame Research Library in Canton, Ohio. And I pulled into a truck stop, I think it was in um, northern Kentucky or southern Ohio. I can't remember which. And um, I got an email from a friend of mine that works at NFL Films, Chris Willis. And he, he says to me, you know, Chris has written several great books um, for his publisher, and he's stuck with the same publisher for many years. And he's he's written, I think, about seven or eight books, maybe more. And um, they're great books. And so if, if you get a chance to go on Amazon, look up Chris Willis, W-I-L-L-I-S, and see the different books that he's written. He's written a lot. Um, anyway, he told me that his publisher's looking for uh, – a football book that had kind of a, a socialized bent to it, a slant to it. And I said, hmm, they're interested in me? You know, and, and this is one of the mistakes that any young author can make. If you are under contract to write a book and somebody offers you an opportunity to write another book at the same time, run. Don't walk. Run from such advice. But I also believe that you, if your opportunity knocks once and you better take it or else the door will slam shut. So I contacted his publisher anyway, and they told me what they were looking for. And I, I thought about it and I thought about it. And I came to the conclusion that, you know, if you're looking for somebody who is a, is, kind of like um somebody that's that did something in the game um in in a lot of different ways i thought of willie lanier because i knew he was the first african-american middle linebacker who was a a regular starter uh as as a middle linebacker for a number of years and i also knew that no one had ever written about him i didn't see anything that was written about him i didn't i didn't i I looked all over and think "Hmm, there's a lot of articles about him but there was no real, uh, you know, no real book written about him. So I pitched the idea to Chris's um, publisher, uh, Roman and Littlefield, 
and they love the idea. And they offered me a contract. I figured, okay, I got a full-time job. I'm already under contract to write this one book. I'll sign this contract and I won't sleep for the rest of the next year. And, and, and practically that's what happened. Um, but I, so I go up to Canton, Ohio to do research on the seven Jew Packers. And I'm also doing research on Willie Lanier. Well, no good deed goes unpunished. And even though Roman and Littlefield loved the idea, Willie Lanier did not. Uh, he, he didn't want, he, he didn't want anybody to write a book about him except either himself or Michael McCambridge, who's also a good friend of mine and who is an excellent writer. And Michael's on many NFL film shows, ESPN shows. He's written a lot of great books and, you know, really a lot of um, outstanding books uh, that I refer to even today because I have quite a few of them. And uh, so I asked Willie, are you sure? I mean, here's an opportunity for you to tell your story. Nope, not interested. A couple of weeks later, I call Willie back up and he goes, didn't I already tell you no? And I said, yes, yes, you did, Mr. Lanier. But this is a great opportunity for you and you'll be able to, you know, because I knew he didn't, I didn't say it, but I knew he was in his seventies. Don't you want something, you know, to point to, to your legacy, you know, like in print? Yes, we know you're a hall of fame middle linebacker, you know, and we, we know you're one of the, maybe the, top five greatest middle linebackers of all time. But knowing it and having a book about it are two different things. He said, no, I like baseball. I'm not a big fan, but I do like it. And I believe in the three strikes and you're out theory. So about a month after that, I tried, I got to try one more time. I said, Willie, I'm prepared to give you some money. And I'll, I will give you, $1,000 for 20 minutes of your time. See, now where I come from, if somebody's offering me $1,000 for 20 minutes of my time, that $1,000 is mine. I don't care what it's doing. As long as it's legal, I'm doing it. So Willie says to me, young man, <laughs> you know that's an insult to me. I have six figures coming out of my ass right now. And I'm thinking, oh, gee, I can't write that. Um, but I, I can say that, you know, Mr. Lanier, this is an opportunity that you might not get. He goes, I'm sorry, I told you. I, I'm not taking, I'm not, I'm not going to have you write my story. I said, okay. So I never asked him again. And so I learned a valuable lesson there. Do not say you're going to do something without making sure you can do something. And that just doesn't go with writing. It goes with anything. You better make sure that you have the knowledge, skills, and abilities and the wherewithal to do those things that you say you're going to do. Otherwise, you're just blowing in the wind. Now, when you... Were told no by Willie. Was this a 
sort of um, opportunity for you to kind of be a little creative with how you wanted to do this. Like well, you, when, when you were planning to write the book about Willie Lanier, were you planning that he was going to tell you all these stories and you were going to turn that into the book? Or did you have any plans to use other resources like newspapers or player interviews to incorporate along with it? I, I, I wanted it mostly to be from his word of mouth. Um, yeah, I was, in, I was going to incorporate other sources, um, but I, I wanted it to be his story. And I wanted esoteric things that no one has ever asked him before. He was a college student at the University of, um, well, in, in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I forget the name of the college. God, it's been such a while ago that I wrote the darn book. It was it's not a major college. Um, God, I'm going to get letters now. Anyway, um, I wanted to find out what did you feel like when you first heard that President Kennedy was assassinated? You, you know, you would have been of the age to know how how impacting that would be. I wanted to know things like that about his thoughts. And, you know, I had all the information football-wise that I needed. I wanted to know about other things. How, did, how, how do you look upon race relations today? You know, things like that. But... I, I didn't. I never got that opportunity, and that's that's what I'm really regretting, unfortunately. And I think, sadly, maybe Willie would too. If, if you know, if if Michael doesn't write his story, if he doesn't let Michael McCambridge write his story, or if he doesn't write it, um, you know, I I I think we're all at a loss for that. But um, I I wanted I wanted to know other things about him. Um, then you know, I had all the football knowledge I needed. Did you send him a copy? I did not. I did not. I knew he would see it, though, because I sent a copy to uh, somebody that works with him who did talk to me. And so I'm sure he showed it to him. And I also showed it. I mean, I also sent copies to Bobby Bell, who and and, and to, um, oh, uh, Ray, Ray. Oh, God, the tight end for the Raiders. Oh, God. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm getting old. See, I'm can't I can't remember these guys' names. Uh Ray Chester, you know, who played with Willie in college and and to Mark Washington who played with Willie in college. They they both talked to me uh and let me interview them and they gave me great interviews. Um but you know, I learned a valuable lesson. Make sure you have that the person. And I I followed that up because, you know, I'm I'm interviewing Bill Bradley on a store on a book about him and he's I've interviewed him now, I think, 10 times already, you know, and I'm going to his house in a couple of months to talk to him some more in person. So God willing. So make sure you get the person. You know, I, 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 I feel kind of sorry for Willie in that he never let me give him a chance. That's all. So what were some surprising facts that you had learned about Willie that you may have not have expected? Um, well, you know, other than the fact that I thought he would have given me a chance to, let, I, because I I had heard from other people. I, this is here. Here's a crazy story. I heard um, a story about some guy that moved into his neighborhood and looked him up in the phone book and called him up. He wasn't a reporter or a writer or anything, and he called him up and Willie talked to him about his career. So you know, I'm thinking, well, if he's going to talk to him, he'll surely he'll talk to me. Nope. No. Nope. So that was kind of, you know, I was, it was kind of disconcerting. I admit that he wouldn't give me the time of day, but I had my ace in the hole. 
I had two of them, actually. I had my friend at NFL Films, Chris Willis, and NFL Films has interviewed Willie four different times. And they also interviewed, um, of course, Len Dawson numerous times and Jim Lynch, a fellow linebacker of the Chiefs, a couple of times. So Chris uh, sent me all the transcripts from all those interviews. So I had I had plenty to go on on that. And then my friend uh, at the Hall of Fame Research Library, uh, he sent me a whole bunch of stuff on Willie Lanier that I didn't have that I couldn't find on my own. And so those were my aces in the hole. And, and um, that helped me out quite a bit. In fact, it helped me out so much that the... Um, the publishers told me this is too long. You got to cut some of this out. Ended up, I had to cut over a hundred pages out. And when you have a deadline and you got to start chopping away over a hundred pages and keep the narrative intact, that was a challenge. I didn't get a whole lot of sleep until that thing was published. Do you remember watching Willie play? I do. What was his, what was it that, um, what was it that made him a great linebacker? But what was it also that separated him from the other great middle linebackers of that time? A couple of things. One, of course, his, which everybody will say first and foremost was his knowledge, his intellect. Probably, for my money, the most intelligent middle linebacker of all time in pro football history was Willie Lanier. Just, just so knowledgeable about what the opposition was trying to do. And what he knew he could do with his personnel on the field. And it it got to the point where Hank Stram pretty much Willie Lanier, Willie's got it, let him let it alone, you know. And 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 that's how Hank was, you know, he got his veteran players so well so 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 knowledgeable about the game and the opponents and the tendencies and all that that he didn't really have to worry too much about him. guys like Johnny Robinson in the secondary, Bobby Bell, linebacker, Buck Buchanan, Curly Culp, uh, Jerry Mays, all defensive linemen. They, they were great. They knew what they had to do. Um, so Willie's in, intellect and his knowledge was way higher than a lot of middle linebackers in the NFL. I, I'd say even today. Um Another thing is Willie's body type was perfect for that position. It was almost as if, you know, God has a, had a hammer and chisel and he chiseled out the middle linebacker and it, oh, it's Willie Lanier. It, it was just perfect. The, the, he wasn't too tall, wasn't short, really, um, because back at that time, a lot of people were shorter than what they are today in today's NFL. Uh, so he was... It was just a perfect body type, and he was built like a like a um, like a cinder block wall. Uh, very strong. You're running into him. You're going to be the one that bounces backwards, not him. Um, you can look at the films. He'll hit people, and he knocks them down. And you know they're they're not getting back up. You know, you know at least not until after the play's over. Uh, he hit people about as hard as a, at a, as a, at a, as a middle linebacker can hit somebody legally, Willie's the guy. Now in years since Ray Lewis, I'd have to say is up in the top three. 
Um, but Willie's Willie's up up in the top five for sure. I'd I'd put him as number three. Do you think that Hank Stram um, would have been as creative and as flexible on defense if he didn't have Willie Lanier? That's a very good question. I I think that Hank Stram's uh, blood type was DNA creativity. Um, it was just Hank Stram. It it didn't matter who was playing; he was going to be creative regardless. But having Willie Lanier made that so much more easier for Hank. And by the time Willie had gotten to the NFL, um, what was the middle linebacker really doing at that point? Because from what I, I gather, it seems like I'm not sure how accurate the story is or if it's become kind of folklore within football that Tom Landry basically took uh, the center or the lineman that was over the center and then just stood him up. And that was, you know, Sam Huff in the violent world and everything like that. So what did Willie kind of bring to the position that hadn't really been done before? Just mostly brains, Mm -hmm. you know, much more, you know, a cerebral look. If, if you took like a quarterback position, he was a quarterback of the defense and it was beginning. the, The, the game itself was getting more complicated even as Willie was playing in his early years, it was starting to get more and more complicated. You needed somebody with the brains of a Willie Lanier to excel at that position and to make sure the rest of the defensive players excelled. Now, a lot of detractors might say, well, he only won one Super Bowl. Yeah, well, you know what? That's one more than a lot of great middle linebackers have won. Moreover, uh, it's a team game. And if all these great players that you have eventually retire and you plug up those holes with guys that aren't as great, guess what? Your team's not going to be as great. So it's it's just common sense. You know, uh, there, there's a lot of great middle linebackers in pro football that don't have a ring. Willie has one. And who would you say in the modern era could be compared to Willie? Wow. Um, well, because, you know, they don't, there's so much three, four defenses going on. Uh, I don't know if there's any real pure middle linebacker, like, like a Lanier anymore. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be in today's game, but maybe someone of the past decade or even the turn of the century, if you want to go that far. Really, uh, you know, a, a lot of people might say you're a little bit off the mark here but i think you got to look at a guy like willie mcginnis who played for the patriots for a number of years i thought i thought he was really good um and of course i said ray lewis obviously um but there's there's a few others i, I would suspect um let's see i'm trying to think you know generally you're look at with a question like that you're looking for Let's see, winning teams, winning teams, you know, who had great middle linebackers? Uh, you know, the, the year the Packers won their most recent Super Bowl, I thought Clay Matthews and A.J. Hawk were both excellent linebackers who, who really excelled for that team. Um, I can't name any one specific one other than maybe Willie McGinnis. What about uh, Zach Thomas? 
Zach was a really good linebacker, but he was even shorter than Lanier, I believe, in, in size-wise, uh, height. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a really good middle linebacker. I, I think he was an overachiever. A lot of people didn't realize what he could do, but it, who was that guy that played for Chicago, that um, Erlocker, mm-hmm. Brian Erlocker? That's another guy, too. You didn't know what was going to come out of these colleges. You didn't know what to ex- expect. You, so a lot of teams take chances with guys like that. Earl Locker's in the Hall of Fame. People say Zach Thomas should be in the Hall of Fame. So, I mean, they both had stellar careers. And it seems to me that's a position that really requires leadership, especially, you know, maybe as you pointed out, there's not like a lot of pure four, three defenses anymore, or even three, four defenses, but that middle linebacker position is almost um, mythological in a sense. Like I was watching the um, NFL top 100 from 2010. It was all players of all time, not just who's currently playing. Mm-hmm. And there was the Willie Lanier clip and he's sitting on the bench and he yells out for the guys to take a knee who are on the sideline. so he could see who's playing. And it's just, it's great. You know, it's like when a guy says jump, you say how high, and it just shows yeah. how that position really re- requires you to, you know, be a leader. And whenever you are a leader, people respond to you. Yeah. You know, and, um, and he didn't mean, I saw the same clip. He didn't mean it in a, in a de- demonstrative way per se, you know, or anything like that. It was just the people looked up to him because they obviously knew what he had done. He, you know, um, he, he, he came from nowhere and he made something of himself and he became one of the greatest of all time. And, and I think players, even he retired in 77 Players of that era even knew knew it back then that he was they're playing with a Hall of Famer. You know, I, I, I honestly believe that. And do you think that Bobby Bell was a better outside linebacker than Willie was a middle linebacker, or would you say the reciprocal is true? I oh, that's a very good question. I, I'd have to say it's reciprocal only in the effect that the two jobs were totally different in in, in what Hank Stram wanted for his 4-3 defense. Bobby Bell's um, range was just phenomenal. Everybody talks about his tackling ability, which was second to none, and I mean none. Um, you you want to look at a clinic on how to tackle somebody? You don't look at 2010 or 2000. You look at Bobby Bell in the 60s and 70s. That's how you tackle people. Um you know, I've seen Franco Harris run a sweep, and, and Bobby knocked him on his buttocks. I, I mean, you know, Franco Harris, you know, a young Franco Harris, he he was a load, you know, he, and he had speed to go with it. You know, he was – Bobby Bell put him in his plate. You know, so I, I'd have to say it's reciprocal, but only because the jobs were totally different. And the reason why I asked that is because from that same Top 100 series – I think Chuck Klosterman was doing the introduction for Jack Lambert. Mm-hmm. And he said that Jack Ham was probably a better outside linebacker than Jack was a middle linebacker. Um, but because Lambert had such ferocity in the way he played and because he had a little bit more of an iconic face, you know, with the Dracula mm-hmm. label and the missing teeth, that he right. kind of cemented himself more in the minds of Steeler fans than Jack did. Undoubtedly. And, you know, Jack Ham, 
I've, I'll, I'll go to my grave saying this. I've never seen a better outside linebacker play pass coverage in my life than Jack Ham. I, I've seen him cover tight ends, cover backs, like nobody's business. And he's got the interceptions to prove it. But no, he doesn't have the ferocity that, that a Lambert does. And if you're going to mention linebackers of the Steelers in, this, in the glory days of the 70s, you're going to mention Lambert before you mention Ham. That's just the way it is. And sort of similar to the question I asked before. So hypothetically, if you were going to release another edition of this book um, and Willie said, you can ask me one question, what would you ask him? Wow. I would probably ask him, did you ever take offense of not, not getting recruited as much at a division one, a school as what, other white players did who you knew you were better than. That's what I would ask. And your next book that you mentioned, it's about uh, what's his name? Bill Bradley of the uh, Philadelphia Eagles and four games with the St. Louis Cardinals. (laughs) Um, He played, I believe a total of nine years and he's the first man to lead the NFL in interceptions two years in a row. And he's quite a character. How did you get the idea for him? Years ago, while I was writing my book on the 1970s in the NFL, um, an acquaintance of mine who I can't even remember, I don't even remember who proposed this idea to me, said, you know, I'm, I'm good friends with Bill Bradley. And, um, and I, I, I know he wants to have a book written about him. And I said, wow, Bill Bradley. And I, growing up near Philadelphia, I knew who Bill Bradley was. Now, the big challenge I have with a book on Bill Bradley is that a lot of people are going to come up to me and say, you mean the senator who played for the New York Knickerbockers basketball team? I said, no, there's a different one. The guy who played safety for the Philadelphia Eagles, and he's definitely not a senator. <laughs> so, um, But I hope I don't get them too confused, you know, and um, but they, you know, they said, you know, he'd like to have somebody write a book about us. Oh, that's interesting. That idea kept in the back of my mind. I never had time for it. Finally, after the Packers of 72 book and the Lanier book were done, I needed another project. And I I contacted Bill Bradley. I sent him a copy of my first book, the 70s in the NFL. And he calls me at work one day. He goes, yeah, I'll let you do a book about me. And I'm thinking, you know what? You know why I decided to? To, to say yes to you. And I said, why is that, Bill? And he looks at the end. He says, because in the index, you have me listed in the index, and each one of the page numbers corresponds with one of my favorite numbers. <laughs> so he's he's out there in left field, but he's funny as hell, and he's he's a great guy. I, I just, I love talking to him. Some of our conversations have gone on past two hours, and I can't wait to um, to meet him in person. I just hope that I can get this thing published and so that he lives long enough that he can see it and show it to his friends and his family. How old is he? I think he's 72. And I, I'm sure this is a much more enjoyable process since the subject will actually cooperate. Yeah, oh yeah, it is. It has been. Um, I enjoy it. And, and, you know, some of the stuff that he's talked to me about, I've never heard of before. So the 
hopefully if people get the book, they'll, they'll learn something new too, I hope. So for the final question I have is, as the author of three books, you've done a book about an entire decade. You've done one about a specific team and you've written one about a player. And now you're writing another one about a player who you actually can interview and talk about their experience. What other vantage point of the game do you want to analyze and possibly write a book about in the future? I'm afraid to tell you because the worst thing you can do is tell what you want to do and then somebody else does it. I've actually had ideas for two separate books that I started writing that other people have written books about and published after I got maybe one or two chapters done. And I'm thinking they beat me to the punch. What were and the so, ideas? Um, I wanted to write about um, the Pottsville Maroons, uh, the, the football team back in the twenties and up in uh, near where I'm from in Pennsylvania. And um, I forget what the other one was. But, oh, oh, the other one. I, I don't want to tell you because I still haven't given up hope on it. I'm hoping right. that be, I'm hoping that because their book kind of didn't do too well because there were too many typos in it that after a few years, people might like my idea better. So I, I better not tell you, but I am, I am going to work after, after my uh, book on Bill Bradley is done. I am planning on working on a screenplay. So football related. Yeah, it is not not the not the seventies, um, but like any screenplay, it has more to do with relationships than just uh, what you're doing as a career. Well, Joe, this has been a great uh, conversation that we've had. I've learned a lot just from listening to you talk about the seventies, and I think everybody should go and read your three books. So, do you want to tell everybody where they can get them? Sure. Uh, you can find them uh, on Amazon.com, um, BarnesandNoble.com, and BooksAmillion.com websites. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes they get sold out, but they get restocked pretty quickly. And, um, you know, thanks in advance for buying them. And to those who have already bought them, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy you decided to come on and hopefully we can have you on again whenever your uh, next book is published. Definitely, will do, Aaron, and thanks for inviting me. Take care and have a happy holiday season. Yeah, you too. Have a good one.